Well, good evening, Fathom Academy. You've made it to the end. This is week 12, three full months of studying every week. Uh, systematic theology, I mean, Christian theology, doctrine. Good, good on you for making it all the way to week 12. I'm so thankful that you've joined us for this. As, as we join, are, are joined by Ryan for this last week, we, we jump into the, the, the study of eschatology, the end times, the last things. And uh, this is one of those doctrines that, man, it, it is polarizing. It's one of those doctrines that is grossly misunderstood, but it is one of those doctrines that really is uh, of, of the utmost importance. How does uh, the end work? Uh, we do not believe that we are still, uh, you know, uh, without knowledge about what will come. God is already completing his work. And so tonight we're going to study this. Ryan is uh, going to walk us through this. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, thank you for, for this. If you've got comments, if you've got thoughts, please reach out to us. Uh, we would love to hear from you. But let me pray before we spend our last time with Ryan together. Lord, thank you for... Um, this class. Thank you for uh, all the work that you have uh, done in us and through us as we have studied this, this Christian theology. Uh, Lord, tonight as we look at eschatology and the, the, the study of the end times, uh, Lord, would you, would you grow us? Would you deepen us? Would you uh, give us minds to, to grasp kind of difficult things, things that have been argued, things that have been debated, things that are still hot topics or within the church? And, and Lord, give us grace to to, to understand and learn that there are myriad of opinions out there on this, but Lord also deepen us in our love for you through this. Thanks for Ryan, where we bless him tonight. And we thank you for uh, his service of our church and ourselves this summer. Uh, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, good evening, friends. Good to be back with you for our last week together. Hard to believe we have covered just a ton of material in these 11 weeks. Uh, and if you have persevered to the end, I thank you for your time and your attention. Uh, we've been covering some really challenging terrain the whole course. And we come now to uh, the talk that I've been dreading the most, uh, which is eschatology it comes right at the very end. We're going to talk about uh, the study of the last things, uh, you may sometimes hear this referred to as the end times. Uh, the reason I've been dreading it is because it's very hard to talk about. Uh, we are in a lot of very confusing texts, particularly the revelation of John, the book of revelation, which comes right at the end of your new Testament. And if you've read it, that book is crazy. Uh, that's the technical theological term for, uh, for it. It's bonkers. There's all kinds of fantastical imagery and uh, sort of mysterious uh, symbolism going on. And I am not a specialist. So my goal in our time tonight is to just acquaint you with the most basic vocabulary of Christian eschatology. So we're going to talk about terms like rapture and second coming and antichrist, lots of fun stuff. And then uh, we're going to just talk a little bit about how the Christian scriptures tell the end of the story, when human history reaches its consummation, whenever that is, what the New Testament seems to teach about what that will look like. As I said, it's very mysterious territory. We're going to have to tread carefully, hold all of these views with an open hand, because in my own opinion, uh, there's lots of room for disagreement here because lots of this is speculative. So we're going to do the best we can. We're not going to get into the nitty gritty of all kinds of views of the millennium, the pre-millennial view or post-millennial view or all-millennial view. And we're not really going to talk about uh, 
the tribulation and the rapture. We're going to talk about those in general terms, but not getting into debates on specific positions just because we don't have time. Um, I'm happy to talk about those things if there are questions I can address. So uh, here we go. Eschatology. Now, eschatology has produced more rampant speculation than any other uh, center of Christian doctrine, particularly in the evangelical tradition where many of us come from. And how do I know this? Well, uh, part, uh, partially, we can tell that this is the case because there have been not just one, but two major motion films about the end times, the Left Behind movies, uh, both starring legendary actors. One, uh, the early version starring Kirk Cameron, of Growing Pains fame. And then uh, a couple years back, if you didn't think that Nicolas Cage's career could get any more depressing, go see the, the most recent Left Behind movie where Nicolas Cage st stars as a pilot who uh, undergoes the end times. Uh, both terrible, terrible movies based on uh, terrible, terrible books. But why is it that uh, out of all the uh, Christian doctrines, it's only eschatology that attracts this kind of Attention, you don't see major motion films made about the doctrine of the Trinity uh, or pneumatology or something like that. Uh, well, we've always had a, a, a fascination with the end times. Christians have since the very beginning. And so um, with that said, we do need to be very careful here in this area of doctrine because uh, I just don't think, and I'm just speaking for myself here, but I think... Uh, I'm on fairly solid ground here. I just don't think the New Testament is as clear on these doctrines as it is on some other core Christian teachings. But with that said, eschatology remains very, very important. I'm going to try, hope to illustrate why uh, over the course of our time together this evening. So what we're going to do um, in three parts, uh, I'm going to introduce you, as I said, to some of the most basic vocabulary of eschatology. Uh, just so that when you hear these terms used, or maybe you come across them in reading that you're doing, you'll at least know generally what they are and where to locate them conceptually. In part two, we're going to talk a little bit about the return of Jesus Christ, which is the most central eschatological doctrine in the Christian faith. And then in part three, I'm going to talk a little bit about death, judgment, resurrection, and final destinies, heaven and hell. Uh, although we don't have the time uh, tonight to treat any of these doctrines in the level of depth that they deserve, I'm going to try to give you a high-level overview. So uh, just a few preliminary uh, considerations here that you'll have on your study guide. Uh, just in terms of uh, vocabulary, eschatology comes from two uh, Greek words, eschatos, which means final or last, and then logos, word or idea. So all this means is uh, sort of concerted, systematic Christian thinking about the last things. A related term that you'll hear me using in our talk tonight, you may come across elsewhere, is the word eschaton. When I refer to the eschaton, what I'm referring to is what we might call the last age, when all of God's purposes have come to total consummation. The eschaton, for instance, is what is envisioned at the very end of the book of Revelation, uh, the new heavens and the new earth where God is reigning with his people in perfect justice and peace and glory. Uh, so eschaton is just sort of a shorthand for that coming age uh, at the end and consummation of human history. So eschaton. Uh, so general eschatology, uh, we're going to talk about general eschatology and we're going to talk about personal eschatology. Uh, general eschatology deals with the end of human history, the end of this current cosmos, but I don't mean end in the terms of destruction. 
As we're going to see, the Bible teaches that the cosmos, the world that we inhabit, it's not going to be destroyed. It's going to be renewed, restored. That's the vision of the New Testament. Uh, So we might mean to end here in terms of ultimate purpose towards which creation is heading. Uh, So the end of this current cosmos and the consummation of all things, the bringing together of all things in Jesus Christ under his lordship which is what historically the Christian faith has taught about the end of days. So I'm hopeful that by the end of our talk tonight, we can come down somewhere between what Millard Erickson, a a contemporary theologian, calls eschatomania and eschatophobia. By eschatomania, he means a sort of pathological obsession with the last days This is still very, very common in evangelical circles. People constantly searching for signs that we're in the end times, that the return of Jesus is imminent. Uh, I remember being a teenager when the Y2K Y2K scare happened. uh, And it was thought that all the computers in the world were going to shut down because of a programming glitch on January 1st, year 2000. And uh, I knew people... Uh, well, I knew of people anyway. I didn't know anyone personally. When you're 15, you don't really know anyone. But I knew of people who were building bunkers and hoarding supplies because they thought that the end times were imminent. And as it turned out, nothing happened. This is what Erickson means by eschatomania. But he says we can also make the opposite mistake, which he calls eschatophobia. And that's the idea that we're not going to talk about eschatology at all. We're too, we're, we're worried about falling into sort of wild speculation. So we just don't want to talk about it at all. And some evangelical Christians have fallen into this side of the equation where it's best not to really talk about that. It's all too mysterious. And I hope that we can fall somewhere in between where we're not manically searching for signs for the end times, but rather seeking to live faithful lives, expecting the imminent return of Jesus Christ as Christians have for 2000 years, but without obsessing uh, pathologically about it. And at the same time, allowing eschatology to really shape our lives Uh, What sort of people are we supposed to be as we await the return of Jesus? That's a vital eschatological question. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Some more general terms that you'll come across. Uh, One, parousia. This is a Greek word that is perhaps the most important word in Christian eschatological vocabulary. Uh, And it means presence or coming or arrival. This is the word that is most often used to describe the return of Jesus Christ. Parousia, and it means uh, it means literal physical presence with someone, but it can also mean arrival or presence. So when Paul, for instance, in First Corinthians, First Thessalonians, rather, talks about the parousia of Jesus, he's talking about his return to be with his people. We're going to look at that text in depth in a little bit. Another key term that is really subject to misunderstanding is the Greek word apocalypsis, where we get the word apocalypse. And so, if you read an old English translation of the Bible. Uh, you might see the revelation of John referred to as the apocalypse of John. And in our contemporary English, apocalypse has come to mean the end of the world, right? Uh, You may be familiar. One of my favorite genres of movies is apocalyptic movies, right? Where like aliens come maybe, and there's like a huge battle war of the worlds and the, the end comes, the apocalypse. So we've gotten it into our heads and our imaginations that apocalypse means the end of the world, usually by destruction in fire. But that is not at all how the Bible uses this term. Apocalypsis does not mean destruction or final end. It means unveiling or disclosure. It means to lay something bare or to unmask it or to make it visible or known. 
so the revelation of John or the apocalypse of John is not a, a necessarily an account of the end of the world. It is an unveiling of God's purposes in history. So the word apocalypse means unveiling or disclosure. It does not mean destruction. Very, very important, as we're going to see in a couple of texts. Uh, a third word that is used less frequently, but it's still kind of important, is the word epiphania. And it means an appearance or a manifestation. It's where we get our English word epiphany. When you have an epiphany, it's like you uh, a light bulb goes on and something is made known to you, right? Uh, this word is used in connection with the return of Jesus. Uh, his epiphania, his appearing, uh, his manifestation. And very critically, this word means to appear physically or visibly. It doesn't mean a spiritual appearance. And it doesn't mean like an idea occurring to you in sort of an immaterial way. It refers to uh, a literal, tangible, physical appearing of someone, uh, which as we're going to see is very important to the New Testament writers. Okay, a couple of other hot terms that you're no doubt you've heard. The word rapture, rapture. Uh, there is, some, in some Christian circles, lots of speculation about the rapture and when it will occur. Uh, as a term, this refers to the event uh, in which the church or God's people uh, is caught up. The Latin word here is raptio. So that's where we get our English word rapture. Uh, caught up, grabbed with Christ as he returns for his people. The classical uh, rapture text is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to look at that text here in a few minutes, so I won't say much now, but I will say that that text uh, is subject to misinterpretation uh, and easily can be misread to mean that Jesus is snatching his people and taking, him away, taking them away from the earth because he's about to destroy it. In some uh, evangelical Protestant circles, that's how that text has been read. I'm going to suggest another reading that I think is probably more faithful to what Paul has in mind here. Uh, but just know that rapture, that's what that refers to, is Christ gathering his people to himself. Uh, the question of when the rapture will occur used to be a very hot topic in evangelical theology. It's not so much anymore. You may have heard these debates about uh, whether Jesus will rapture his church before the great tribulation or in the middle of it or after it, post-trib, pre-trib, mid-trib. My own opinion is that the, the biblical text is not at all clear about this. Uh, I have my own convictions and I have my own opinion if pressed, but I don't actually think it's all that important a question because I don't think it's that important for the, for the New Testament writers to tell us. They don't seem that concerned with it. And as we're going to see with this next term, tribulation, this word tribulation, phlepsis in Greek, is used in a, in a couple of different ways in the New Testament. And so it's not always easy to tell what the New Testament writers mean when they use this term. But I think we can at least say this. The word is used at least in one sense to describe a general kind of tribulation that describes the antagonism and hostility and hardship that Christians in all ages, in all places Faith. So a good example is in John chapter 16, verse 33, where Jesus says to his followers, he says, in this world, you will have tribulation. It's the word he uses. He says, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Uh, a number of other New Testament texts, especially in the book of Acts, uh, depict God's people as having to endure all kinds of hardships and trials. Through many trials and tribulations must one enter the kingdom of heaven as the apostles say in the book of Acts. So on uh, one level, the word tribulation can refer to any sort of general hardship. Uh, usually, almost exclusively, that is uh, that comes upon believers because of their faithfulness to Christ. 
So the New Testament suggests that if you are serious about following Jesus, you ought to expect some sort of tribulation uh, at one time or another. Um, But tribulation is also used in what I've called here an eschatological sense. I've given you a couple of texts that you can go back and look at at your own time. But the New Testament does seem to suggest that uh, above and beyond the ordinary tribulation that Christians normally face, there is some sort of intense sort of unique experience of tribulation that believers will experience uh, near the close of the age. This is very mysterious, uh, but all of the Gospels, with the exception of John, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have uh, long blocks of eschatological teaching from Jesus in which he refers to the great tribulation or the great trial or a period, uh, he also calls it a period of great distress, whereas uh, as as history is heading towards its consummation, there will be a sort of period of intense persecution of believers, for instance, intense hardship. This is depicted in Revelation chapter 7, referring to the great tribulation where many, many believers are martyred. I will say here, without trying to resolve the dispute, these texts are all interpreted in various ways. Some scholars believe that Jesus and John are talking about some future tribulation that is yet to come. Others believe that they're referring to events that happened within the first century where Roman emperors uh, killed a great many Christians and Christians endured uh, a great deal of tribulation. All that is to say there is room for reasonable Christians to disagree on how we ought to interpret the great tribulation. But all I want uh, you to take away for our purposes tonight is to understand that the word is used in these two senses, general sense, eschatological sense. Uh, So when you hear the great tribulation, that's typically uh, that eschatological sense. Oh man, another fun term, antichrist, antichristos in Greek, the antichrist. Uh, There's been lots and lots of speculation throughout the history of Christianity about who the antichrist is. Uh, It is uh, sometimes the emperor Nero has been identified as the antichrist, the emperor Domitian a couple of centuries later, Uh, other political rulers, uh, Hitler, Uh, Obama, I saw as I was researching for this talk, Obama had been identified as the Antichrist. Uh, I think that's all speculative. Obviously, there's no way to know. And I think it's become clear that it's actually Bill Belichick. So uh, that's the main takeaway uh, in tonight's talk, if you remember nothing else. No, but the truth is that the New Testament uses this term in a couple of different ways also. And I do not think it's an especially good or helpful or worthwhile practice to try to discern who the Antichrist is. And that's because uh, of what I'm about to tell you. The prefix anti in Greek can mean both against and instead of. So when I say I am anti-New England Patriots, I mean I am against them. But the word can also mean instead of, so sort of like a substitute uh, Antichristos. So uh, that means that the New Testament uses the word Antichrist in both of these ways. It uses Antichrist again in a general sense to refer to anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. The word Antichrist affer- uh, appears most often in the book of 1 John, where John refers to Antichrist as anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ and that he has come in the flesh. So he's using anti in that first sense, against. Uh, And he even says in his letter that there are many antichrists who have gone out into the world. Is anyone who opposes Jesus the Christ? So it's used in that very general sense, sometimes in the New Testament. But it's also used in a specific sense to refer to a a sort of counterfeit 
pseudo-God who opposes and attempts to deceive God's people. You see this, for instance, in Paul's reference to the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2, who says that, who must be revealed before the end can come. I'm not a specialist in Paul or in 2 Thessalonians, and so I'm not going to hazard a guess on who he has in mind here, but he does seem to suggest that there will be one particular figure who emerges at the end of uh, history to oppose God's purposes, and not only to oppose them, but to posit himself as a substitute counterfeit God who may even deceive the elect, is what he says there. So all that is to say, we can interpret Antichrist in a few different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it seems to be referring to a personal historical figure, but other times it uh, seems to refer to an ideal or sort of a symbolic figure the Antichrist as a symbol and a personification of all the forces that oppose God and his purposes. All that is to say, uh, if I could caution you, we ought to be careful with this term and remember that uh, on one level, the Antichrist is anyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. Uh, And then uh, it may be referring to one particular figure, but we would do well not to try to guess who that is. That would be my advice to you. Okay. Uh, with some of the basic vocabulary in place, let's just briefly explore, explore some very important eschatological themes in Christian theology. And the center of all this is the return of Jesus Christ. That is the center and the consummation of the Christian hope. Uh, and it is central and non-negotiable to Orthodox Christian belief. So here we have the Nicene Creed in the version that it took in the year 381. So very ancient Christian confession. And listen to what it says about Jesus Christ. We believe in Jesus Christ, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. Uh, So we talked about the doctrine of the incarnation. Man, that feels like eons ago. But if you can remember back that far, some of these themes will sound familiar to you. Who was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was made man, was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. We talked about all the different modes and models of the atonement some weeks back. He suffered, was buried, and on the third day he rose again. According to the scriptures, he ascended into heaven. So we talked about the exaltation, the ascension, the exaltation of Jesus Christ, who is now reigning at the right hand of the Father, and who sits at the right hand of the Father. And here's uh, the key point for us this evening. He shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. So uh, the return of Jesus Christ in Christian theology represents the consummation and the culmination of the the work of the exalted Jesus, who having accomplished salvation for us by his life, his death, his resurrection, comes to take up his rightful place as the ruler of all things, as testified to in many, many New Testament texts. We talked about a couple of them a couple weeks ago. Uh, So as you might imagine, the return of Jesus figures really prominently in the New Testament. I've given you a handful of texts. I won't spend a lot of time here because you can reflect on them yourself and go read them in their context. But just want to uh, point out a couple of things. Uh, Matthew 24 uh, refers to the the coming of Jesus, but in very sort of cryptic terms. This is Jesus uh, giving the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, which is a zany passage, very hard to understand. But it seems clear, uh, whatever else is unclear, that Jesus is uh, depicting a future in which at the end of days, he will appear, and he uses the word uh, that is related to the word uh, epiphaneo, uh, a physical, uh, visible, public appearance, uh, where he will appear to all of the tribes of the earth, he says. 
uh, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And this is important too. This uh, image of coming on the clouds uh, is all imagery, particularly from the book of Daniel in chapter seven in particular, which depicts the son of man after he has conquered the beast and overcome all of God's adversaries is uh, exalted to his place of creation on the clouds. So this, uh, it's quite possible, is symbolic uh, metaphorical language to, to express the authority uh, given to the Son of Man. And this is, uh, remember, Son of Man is the term that Jesus preferred to use for himself. In John chapter 14, he promised that he would return uh, to his people so that they may be where he is also. Uh, Acts chapter one, we looked at the Ascension briefly a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and in the Ascension, uh, the angels tell the disciples that he is going to return in the same way that he left. Um, Acts chapter three refers to Jesus re returning to restore all things. This is very important. We're going to talk about it at length in a minute. Uh, but the Christian vision for the future is not God abandoning creation or destroying it, but rather uh, recreating it, restoring all things. Uh, the biggest rapture text is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This book has received uh, lots of attention in terms of eschatology and speculation about the return of Christ. And let me read what Paul says here in verses 15 through 16, and then we're going to come back and sort of make sense of it together. He says this, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, and he's writing to Thessalonian Christians who have written to him in a letter that we don't have, asking for clarification about the return of Jesus. So that's the context. This is what he's talking about. Those who are alive, who are left until the coming, parousia, the appearing, the presence of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead will rise first. Okay. Uh, and then he goes on to say that he will rapture. He will, he will take up, snatch up his people uh, to meet him in the air, Paul says. And then he says, so we will always be with God. Now in evangelical theology, this text has historically been interpreted to mean, at least in some streams of evangelical Christianity, that God, uh, that Jesus reveals himself. He comes in his parousia he takes his people away from earth to go with him to heaven uh, while everybody else remains on earth to suffer the great tribulation. This is, for instance, the plot of the Left Behind books and the Left Behind movie uh, where the saints get raptured, they disappear uh, instantly, and then everybody is kind of left to fend for themselves as the tribulation is poured out on the earth. But that's not the image that Paul is giving us here, actually. This language uh, of a cry of command and a trumpet signals that Paul's got something else in mind here. And some scholars think, and I think they're right about this, that what Paul has in mind here is what, what is called a Roman triumph procession. And the idea here is what Paul is giving us is not the idea that Jesus is coming to take his people away from earth, but rather in the ancient Greco-Roman world, when a, when a, um, general or a leader would go out on a military campaign and then he would conquer his foes. He would return to the capital 
And all of his people would leave the city gates and they would go meet him on the road and then they would fall in behind him to form a triumphal procession back to the capital where the victorious general will take his seat on the throne. And there's good reason to believe that this is the image that Paul has in mind here. Not that Jesus Christ is taking us away from creation, but we are his people, his citizens going out to meet him after he has triumphed over the powers of sin, death, and destruction, and then escorting him in a triumphal return back to the capital where he takes his seat on the throne. And the New Testament is absolutely clear, quoting Psalm 2, Psalm 110, that the the exalted Messiah will be made ruler of all things and every authority will be brought to bear under his feet. It's Roman triumph language, right? That Paul's using here. So we shouldn't think of the rapture as Jesus snatching us away to save us from this wreckage that's going to go down in flames, but rather uh, going to meet him and then returning where, Christ, where Jesus Christ will, uh, will rule over the new heavens and the new earth. That's the vision of the book of Revelation, the apocalypse of John. Second uh, Thessalonians 1 also has some eschatological teaching uh, where he refers to the Lord Jesus Christ being revealed. And there's that word he's using, apocalypsis, right? He's, he's being disclosed. He's being unveiled from heaven with his mighty angels. And when he comes, uh, he'll be glorified with his saints to be marveled at among all those who have, been believe, who have believed. So Paul gives this vision of the return of Jesus as a sort of unveiling, where he unveils all of his power and glory and authority and takes up his rightful reign over creation. Second Thessalonians 2, he goes on to refer to uh, the lawless one. That's that man of lawlessness we talked about, one of the images of the Antichrist, whom the Lord Jesus Christ will kill with the breath of his mouth. A uh, very interesting phrase there. And he will bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Uh, there's that word epiphania again. Um, another reference in Titus 2 refers to us waiting for our blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you can see here for these early Christian texts, the return of Jesus is the culmination of God's domain and dominion over creation. And it is also Uh, the revealing of his glory and power, and it is the substance of the Christian hope. So how might we sum up the theological meaning and character of the return of Jesus? Well, a couple things to say. For the New Testament writers, the return of Jesus is imminent, but no one knows the day or the hour. Uh, Something that will help us to understand the worldview of the New Testament writers is that they believe that in the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, the age to come, whatever it is, has already been inaugurated but it's not going to be consummated until the return of Jesus. So for Paul, he believes that we are living in the end times. Every Christian has believed that for 2000 years. So for the New Testament writers, the end times have already begun. So when we're searching for clues, whether we're living in the last days, the answer is yes, right? The the New Testament writers see us as living in the interim between the resurrection of Jesus and his final uh revelation of authority over all things. These are the last days. And these are central to a lot of Jesus's parables, particularly in the gospel of Matthew, where he speaks of the master going away, but then he's going to return at any moment so that his servants have to remain vigilant. So that means that our posture when it comes to eschatology and the return of Jesus should be vigilant, but not uh, hysterical. What we need is vigilance, not hysteria. Uh, my wife 
has a tattoo uh, of the Greek verb uh, meaning to stay awake. It's taken taken from Jesus's parable of the 10 virgins, where he tells them to stay awake and to keep watch for the return of the master. And she has that tattoo as a reminder that she is always supposed to be keeping watch, right? That the, the return of Jesus is imminent. And so we ought to be living vigilant lives in the meantime and watching how we live, as Paul says in Ephesians, not as unwise, but as wise because the days are evil. So vigilance, but not hysteria. Uh, Christians just cannot seem to resist the temptation to try to calculate when the return of Jesus will be. Christians have been trying this for two millennia now, and every single time they have been wrong. So let's just maybe stop trying, right? We, uh, but we can't seem to resist the temptation. And a good clue that we're not going to be able to figure it out is that when the disciples asked Jesus when the return would be, he said he didn't know right? So here's a, just a tip for you. And this is for free. This is outside of your registration. If you meet a traveling prophet who claims to know something that Jesus Christ doesn't know, it's probably a good uh, reason to be suspicious, right? Jesus didn't, uh, did not know the day or the hour he said, and neither do we. So we need to be vigilant, but not hysterical. What's the character of the return of Christ? Well, it's going to be personal, Right uh, in Acts chapter one, we are told that he will return in the same way that he went. So as as visible, physical, incarnate uh, as a human being, it's going to be a personal return, not some sort of metaphorical or figurative return. It's going to be visible and public. This is what Jesus seems to teach about his return in Matthew twenty four and Mark thirteen that he's going to return publicly. Every eye shall see him. He says, and it's going to be historical. It's not a super historical event. It's not an existential event. Sometimes the return of Jesus Christ has been interpreted as sort of like a, uh, yeah, like a sort of symbolic vision of God's presence with us, but that's not at all how the New Testament writers seem to be thinking about it. We know that the return of Jesus Christ is the culmination of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. So we talked a little bit about how the work of Jesus moves in two movements, the movement of his humiliation, the incarnation, his death, his passion, and then his exaltation, resurrection, ascension, and the return of Jesus is the climax of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. It demonstrates that the triune God is the living God and the true God. This is the final vindication of Jesus Christ. And it is the glorious consummation of God's redemptive purposes. It's the vindication of God's justice. And it is proof that God keeps his promises from Habakkuk 2.14 to Revelation 21. In Habakkuk chapter 2, the prophet looks forward to a day where it says that uh, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. It's a really striking image. In, in other words, the day will come when God will be all in all. That's the way that Paul puts it in First Thessalonians, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15. And in Revelation 21, we have God dwelling with his people and the knowledge of God fills the whole earth. A very clear echo of Habakkuk 2. So the return of Jesus is God keeping good on his promise to fill the whole earth with his knowledge and his power, his glory, and his love. Uh, and it's a very beautiful image that we get at the end of the story in Revelation. And I would just want to read this for you here. This is from Revelation 21. It has somehow found its way into the popular Christian imagination that God intends to destroy creation or scrap it uh, or let it burn. Uh, very famously, the evangelist D.L. Moody, uh, who is a very fine thinker and a very good preacher. Uh, but he said that he looked at the world like a sinking ship 
And the gospel is like a life raft. And he's trying to get as many people into the life raft as he can before the earth goes down. So an admirable sentiment. And I appreciate his urgency about evangelism, but it's not very good eschatology. The Bible does not see the earth as a sinking ship that we need to be rescued from. It rather sees creation as being enslaved in bondage to death and decay, as Paul says in Romans 8, waiting to be set free and to become what it was always meant to be. And here's how Revelation chapter 21 has it. I won't say much about this because it stands on its own. It's very powerful. I just want you to listen to this. This is from John's Revelation chapter 21. And this is John speaking. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Uh, So what you've got here is a sort of renewal of creation. The old world of death and decay has been somehow transformed into the new heavens and the new earth. So uh, very important to note here that the Christian hope is not a disembodied existence where we just sort of float around in an immaterial universe. It is a material salvation, the redemption of all things. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So here you've got uh, the new Jerusalem uh, coming down from heaven. You don't have human beings being snatched up away from the earth into heaven, but rather you've got heaven coming down to earth. That's the vision that John's giving us, right? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with humans and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. So at the end of the story, you've got the one who sits on the throne, uh, the exalted lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who says, I am making all things new, not destroying creation, but remaking it. And this in turn has uh, lots of implications for the way that we think about death and resurrection and judgment and the future hope. So I would just want to close our time over the next few minutes thinking a little bit about these uh, terms. Uh, The Bible is unflinching. Uh, and unsentimental about human death. The Bible simply takes it as a fact that every human being, uh, as a biological organism, will cease to live. Our bodies will decay, uh, break down, and they will ultimately succumb to death. And uh, even though we live in a culture that is desperate to deny this, uh, the sooner we recognize this, the better we'll be. Uh, and it's good for our spiritual health to come to terms with, with our mortality and our uh, finitude. And so the Bible is clear that every human being will die. As the author of Hebrews says, it is appointed for a human being to die once and then to face judgment, which is a harrowing thought. We don't like to think about this. And the Bible also speaks of this very curious uh, thing called the second death. Um. We only get one reference to it. It's in Revelation 21, where we get the great judgment. We're going to talk about that here in a moment. And John says this, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death, he says. 
Now, this is mysterious. Um, I don't presume to know what all of this means, but it has been consistently in the mainstream Christian tradition to suggest that once we die, we face judgment. Uh, And uh, when we do, there seems to be some sort of uh, final loss for those who find themselves separated from God. So uh, many theologians have suggested that the second death may be understood as permanent spiritual death, uh, an eternal finalization of a state of separation from God. And we might say that the second death is a terminus uh, of a life spent in a state of alienation from God. So one theologian has suggested quite helpfully, I think, that we might think of the second death as the sort of finalization of the great trajectory of a life that is chosen to be separated from God. It's a pretty harrowing thought, but we need to be frank about this because the Christian faith teaches that each of us will face judgment. Uh, And we can't speak about eschatology without speaking about it. Uh, Before we get there, though, we need to understand uh, it is sometimes thought uh, that when we die, we immediately sort of go to heaven. But actually, uh, that's not what the New Testament teaches, actually. Uh, The New Testament teaches what some scholars have called the intermediate state, which suggests that when we die, the essence of who we are goes to be with God uh, and our bodies remain in the ground until the great resurrection. This is depicted in Revelation 21, where all people who have died will be resurrected to be reunited with their bodies. And so... um, uh, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has talked about Chris, Christian eschatology as promising a life after life after death. <laughs> and what he means is we often think of life after death as a disembodied state where we sort of float around with God or whatever. But uh, Wright would say, and many, many New Testament scholars following him and before him uh, would say that actually, no, death is an intermediate state uh, before we are ultimately raised to be reunited with God. So let me just show you what this looks like. The intermediate state uh, is typically in the New Testament called Hades, and in the Old Testament it is called Sheol. Sheol. Uh, So Sheol is a term used in the Old Testament to refer broadly to the realm of the dead. Now what's interesting is in the New Testament, uh, there's not necessarily a connotation of punishment or reward. It just is simply the realm of the dead. When you die, you go to Sheol. Uh, And this is all over the place in the Old Testament. Uh, The most famous example is probably Psalm 139, uh, where the psalmist says, where can I go to flee from your presence? If I go up into the heavens, you're there. If I go down to the depths, to to Sheol, you're down there too. And so the Old Testament writers seem to think that when you die, there's a sort of intermediate state where you dwell awaiting the final resurrection. And this is what they call Sheol. It's not necessarily really a place of torture or a place of reward. It just is sort of a gray zone, if we can think of it that way. Uh, the equivalent term in the New Testament is a term called Hades. Uh, and it's a term used to refer to the temporary abode of the unrighteous dead as they await resurrection and final judgment. And this is usually how the word Sheol is rendered into Greek. So when the New Testament, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek in a translation called the Septuagint, Hades was the word that was used to render it. It's also the word that is used in Greek mythology for the underworld. Uh, and Hades, of course, is the, the god of the underworld in Greek mythology. But it's thought to be the sort of shadowy realm of the unrighteous dead. Uh, this term is used a few different times in the New Testament in Luke 16, Matthew 11, 
Acts chapter two. So it seems to be part of the sort of uh, metaphysical universe of the New Testament writers that there's this temporary abode where we go, uh, where the unrighteous dead go. Uh, For the righteous dead, uh, the New Testament uses the word paradise. Uh, For instance, when Jesus says to the to the thief on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. This term, paradosis, is a Greek word that was actually borrowed from Persian, and it means a walled garden or a pleasure ground. And more broadly, it means the temporary abode of the righteous dead, where they are refreshed as they await resurrection and glorification. This term is used in the Gospel of Luke a couple of times, in John chapter 14, also in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. And this word means... Uh, yeah, uh, a sort of place where you stop and be refreshed on a journey, a pleasure ground. So the idea here is it's also called Abraham's bosom in, in the, um, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. I should have mentioned that. And this is the temporary abode of the righteous dead as they await final resurrection and glorification. So uh, all that is to say the biblical writers seem to think that when a person dies, uh, their soul, or for, for lack of a better term, right, the, the core of who they are, Uh, either goes to Sheol, Hades, or to paradise, uh, where you are with Christ uh, until you are finally raised and glorified in a physical body. This is, uh, of course, the vision of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All that is to say, uh, I'll give you a few texts here. I won't spend a lot of time going through them because you can read them on your own. But uh, if you know where to look, you'll see that the New Testament writers and people, the characters that appear in the New Testament all believe that there's going to be this universal general resurrection at the end of history. Um, So for instance, a good example is in John chapter 11. This is where Jesus's friend Lazarus has died. Um, And he's speaking to Lazarus's siblings, Mary and Martha. And they're saying, yeah, if you had gotten here sooner, maybe you could have saved my brother, but now he's dead. Uh, And Jesus says, well, you know, I'm going to raise him up. And she goes, yeah, yeah, I know that he'll rise again at the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus says to her, no, I'm the resurrection and the life. But that what she's talking about when she refers to the resurrection of the last day, almost all New Testament uh, era Jews believed that at the end of history, God would raise both the righteous and the wicked. Uh, after which they would face judgment. This is referred to as the resurrection of the last day or sometimes referred to as the general resurrection. Um, And what's significant is the New Testament writers see Jesus, uh, his own resurrection as a sort of foretaste of the general resurrection of the dead. And so um, this is going to get a little bit hairy here. It can be hard to keep straight conceptually, but I want to try to explain to you that the New Testament sees resurrection happening in stages. Uh, The German theologian Jürgen Moltmann put it like this. He says, Christ's resurrection is understood as the pledge of the new creation. We talked a little bit about this when we talked about the resurrection of Jesus, um, where Jesus is is referred to by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 as the first fruits from the dead. Uh, On one level, the, the resurrection of Jesus is seen as a sort of a promise and a token of a coming resurrection of all things. So this is what Moltmann means. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a pledge. It's a promise that the new creation is coming. So the resurrection of Jesus is an eschatological event, right? It is the first event of the the age to come. Easter, he says, was the prelude to and a real anticipation of God's qualitatively new future and new creation in the midst of uh, the history of the world suffering. So Moltmann is saying the resurrection of Jesus 
is a key to and a foretaste of what God is going to do for the entire created order, right? So the resurrection of Jesus is the first pledge of the new creation. Uh, I have made this super cool and clear diagram on Microsoft Word. You learned in my uh, section on the church that I'm very good uh, at making these on Microsoft Word. But I've tried to just sort of visually conceptualize the best I can the way that the Bible sort of teaches the resurrection. So on one level, you've got the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, the, the New Testament writers see the resurrection of Jesus, the physical bodily resurrection, as the first stage of a multi-stage resurrection of the entire created order. Next comes uh, what is called the first resurrection. It is only referred to once in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, which refers to the, res- the first resurrection of the martyrs. Scholars debate what is meant by this. Does it refer to a spiritual resurrection for all people who have come to faith? Does it refer to the resurrection of just believers who are killed in the Great Tribulation? I don't really know. Uh, if you figure it out, please let me know. But it is only referred to in that one passage. The next step up is what I've called the general resurrection. This has its roots all the way back in Daniel chapter 12. Uh, which refers to God raising all people up at the last day. It says some to everlasting contempt and some to everlasting blessedness. Uh, This general resurrection shows up all over the place in the New Testament where all of these thinkers are looking forward to a day when God will raise all people. So you've got the resurrection of Jesus as the first step, the resurrection of all people and the general resurrection as the next, uh, culminating in the resurrection of the entire cosmos, the entire created order. Uh, This is the vision, for instance, of Romans chapter 8, 2 Peter chapter 3, and Revelation chapter 21. So all, all I really want you to take away here is that we should be interpreting the resurrection of Jesus in some sense as an eschatological event which signals and promises the resurrection of the new heavens and the new earth, the the entire cosmos being redeemed. Here's how Revelation chapter 20 puts it. And this is the the so-called great white throne judgment when everybody is raised to give an account before the resurrection and and glorified Jesus. Uh, And this is how John describes it in Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found from him. It's a really arresting image. The vision of the the crucified, resurrected and glorified Jesus is so sort of terrifying that the skies and the earth are trying to get away, but there's nowhere to run. That's what John is saying. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And then the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And finally, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. So this is the idea of uh, perhaps figurative language of all those who had died or are in this sort of temporary abode are being offered up, resurrected to face judgment. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. We already talked a little bit about the second death. Very mysterious. I'm not sure what's going on here. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So uh, Revelation 20 offers this vision of everyone being resurrected on the last day to face judgment uh, before Jesus uh, and then their eternal destinies being decided there. And that's where we'll close.
It's hard to talk about eternal destinies. It's hard to talk about heaven and hell. Our culture doesn't like to talk about these things. They're uncomfortable and difficult to talk about. And so more often than not, uh, we seek to sort of alleviate some of the, uh, yeah, some of the intensity of the idea by caricaturing it, right? Uh, perhaps you've read the comic strip, The Far Side. They've got some really funny images about hell, right? Nerds in hell and the nerd standing in line and asking his uh, line mate if it's hot enough for you. Uh, or here you've got Satan goading a man with a pitchfork to choose between two doors that say damned if you do, damned if you don't. Uh, or my favorite is a man getting to heaven and saying, well, the, the angel says, welcome to heaven, here's your heart. And then a man going to hell and a demon saying, welcome to hell, here's your accordion, right? Uh, we try to make jokes uh, about heaven and hell because the ideas are so difficult and, uh, and so, frankly, sort of frightening to think about that we just try to deflect the attention. Uh, the New Testament is very serious about heaven and hell, but they also, uh, the New Testament also doesn't really tell us a whole lot about heaven and hell. Uh, and we need to acknowledge that, that we can speak about it as far as the New Testament does. But we need to be careful not to speculate here. The, the 20th century theologian Reinhold Niebuhr says that it is unwise to speculate about the furniture of heaven or the temperature of hell. And I think what he means here is uh, we can only go so far as the biblical texts go. Um, and uh, these are very sensational topics. Uh, they are prone to uh, embellishment but we need to be disciplined and, and careful to just stay where the Bible stays. So I'll just talk very, very briefly as we close our time together here about eternal destinies, uh, the images of heaven and hell in the New Testament witness. Um, so let's talk a little bit about hell. The word um, hell is how uh, the English Bible translates the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna. Um, Jesus speaks of Gehenna often. Um, I know we don't like to talk much about hell and judgment, but Jesus talks about hell and judgment more than any other figure in the Bible, actually. Um, and he often speaks of Gehenna when he does so. And this word is the Greek transliteration of an Aramaic word, Genhenam. Uh, so the word is an Aramaic word, and it has just been transliterated. So it means that it's been spelled with Greek letters. That's how it appears in the Greek New Testament. And when it refers to the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, and this is a site outside uh, the walls of Jerusalem. It's a valley outside of the city center in Jerusalem, which was first associated with Baal worship and all of the detestable practices that came along with that. We, for instance, we get this in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah refers to people sacrificing their children to false gods in the Valley of Ben-Hinnom outside of Jerusalem's city gates. So we know that it's a, it's an image that is used to sort of symbolize uh, all kinds of um, impurity and detestable practices uh, and rebellion against God. So the words got that connotation and it was later used uh, later the place where Jerusalem's refuse was dumped and burned. It was a garbage dump. Okay, the Valley of Ben-Hinnom uh, uh, ben was a garbage dump by the time that Jesus is living. And by Jesus's time, it was sometimes used metaphorically for a place of permanent and everlasting and sometimes temporary condemnation of the wicked. If you read rabbis from Jesus's period, some of them speak of Gehenna as a place of eternal torment. Others speak of Gehenna as a place where uh, sinners are sent to be purified for a certain period, and then they are made perfect, and then they can go into God's presence. So sometimes Gehenna is used as a place of sort of punitive torment, and sometimes it's 
uh, for lack of a better term, seen as a sort of remedial place where people are purified of their imperfections. Um, All that is to say, it's a somewhat ambiguous term, and it's difficult to tell what Jesus means by it, if I'm being completely frank with it. And so one of the things we need to recognize when we talk about uh, the Christian doctrine of hell is that uh, the New Testament uses a bunch of different images to describe hell. Some of them can't easily be reconciled with each other, which may suggest that they are meant to be understood figuratively rather than physically. Um, Now, I'm not at all denying that the Bible teaches that there is some sort of final loss for those who find themselves separated from God. I think the Bible clearly teaches that. All I am trying to say is the specifics of what that looked like are less clear. And just to give you an idea of what I mean, uh, on the one hand, the Bible uses images of torment. Some of them may suggest an unconscious sort of separation from God. Others might suggest a consciousness of being separated from God and being conscious of torment. So for instance, hell is described as a place of unquenchable fire in Matthew 3, a fiery furnace in Matthew 13, a place of condemnation in Matthew 23. It's described as eternal fire in 25, a place of torment in Revelation 14, and a fiery lake of burning sulfur in Revelation 21. But at the same time, the New Testament also uses language of void and darkness and isolation to describe the destiny of those separated from God. Uh, Matthew 8 refers to it as outer darkness or Eternal destruction and exclusion from God's presence. That's in 2 Thessalonians 1. Eternal chains and gloomy darkness, Jude 6. Blackest darkness in Jude 13 or the abyss in Romans 9. All that is to say, the Bible uses a variety of images to describe hell. Um, And I don't quite know what to tell you, except there's all these different images. Uh, And I would caution against taking one and fixating on it And I do think there's room uh, to ask whether we're supposed to take these images figuratively or physically or literally. Um, But at the end of the day, the Bible does teach uh, that the second death is the sort of the finalization of a life spent in separation from God. And it uses all these different images, uh, which are pretty chilling and, and, and pretty difficult. Um. Images of heaven are also sort of vague in the New Testament, uh, not nearly as clear as I, as I think maybe we might imagine. In the Christian popular imagination, uh, we've got heaven as sort of streets of gold and you, you kind of go around and play harps. Or maybe you've got something like the show that was just very popular on NBC, The Good Place, where you get like unlimited frozen yogurt or whatever. Um, the Bible's teaching on the nature of heaven uh, is glorious But sort of by definition, the biblical writers see heaven as sort of unfathomable. Uh, They don't know how to describe it. This is how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, no eye has seen, uh, nor has any ear heard, nor has the human heart imagined what God has in store for those who love him. So the idea here is that whatever God's future looks like, it is so glorious as to sort of explode our categories. Paul says a human heart can't even imagine it. But we do know uh, that the New Testament writers describe it in a few different ways. So we can say with some degree of certainty the following things. Heaven seems to be a place. The new heaven, I should say the new heavens and the new earth. 
rather than heaven. Because when I say heaven, it sort of conjures an image of a disembodied state floating in the clouds. And that's not what I have in mind here, nor is it what the New Testament describes. Uh, So I'm using heaven here as a shorthand for the new heavens and the new earth, the renewed creation, the resurrected cosmos. It seems to be a place of God's unmediated presence without terror. Um, All throughout the Bible, um, when people encounter the living God, they almost die. Uh, To encounter the God in his glory is human undoing. Uh, For instance, in um, Exodus chapter 18, Moses says, hey, God, can I look at your glory? And God says, "Uh, no, because you'll blow up. But how about I veil my backside and you can look at that. But in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, we get this vision of God dwelling with people and unveiling his glory completely. And there is no terror. Uh, You just have God's people basking in the light of God's glory. And he dwells with them. This is depicted in Revelation chapter 21. Um, The new heavens and the new earth seem to be a place where human beings have knowledge of God as he is. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, we can know God, but we can only know him partially and incompletely. Because he says, it's like we're looking through uh, a sort of tarnished glass. He says, through a glass darkly, as the King James puts it. So we can have an idea about God, but we just don't really know him in his fullness. And in 1 John chapter 3... The Apostle John says, hey, listen, what what it is that we're going to be when God unveils his future, he says, is not yet known. But we do know that we will be like him. And he says, why? Because we're going to see him as he is. In Roman Catholic theology, this has typically been called the beatific vision. And what they mean is it is the destiny of the saints to be able to gaze upon God in his beauty, which is a pretty beautiful idea, right? Um, I mentioned last week, I think, or maybe it was two weeks ago that I remember I once asked my grandmother what heaven would be like, which is not a fair question. Uh, She, you know, she wasn't a theologian or a biblical scholar. uh, And she said, oh, you know, you sing praise songs for eternity and you can kind of play and you see your family or whatever. And I remember thinking like, that sounds kind of bad. I don't want to listen to Lord, I lift your name on high on repeat for uh, eternity. But the New Testament's vision is uh, much more compelling than that. Whatever else the new heavens and the the new earth are, they are the place where we see God in his beauty. Uh, It's an astonishing thought. Uh, It is also the place where all evil and sin have been overcome once and for all. And man, talk about not uh, not fathomable. Uh, It is hard for us to even imagine something like this, uh, where... Uh, we live in a world that is not no longer tainted by evil and sin and brokenness. As Paul says in Romans 8, creation itself, it's going to be set free from its bondage to sin and decay. So creation will shine in all of the glory that it was meant to. We will be set free from sin and decay, and we will enjoy perfect fellowship with God and with one another and with the created order. And whatever else it will be, the new heavens and the new earth will be the perfect reflection of God's unfathomable glory, his splendor, and his brilliance. This is all over the book of Revelation, but particularly in chapter 21, uh, where all these images of the foundations being built with precious stones and dazzling emeralds and a street that is made of gold, but still completely translucent and clear. Uh, These categories break our brains. We can't even imagine them. And that's the point, right? that God's future is beyond human reckoning. So 
Um, there's lots more that we could have said about eschatology this evening. Lots that we left untreated. And sadly, that's the case for this entire course. We only began to scratch the surface on all of these doctrines. But here is a fitting place to end. Uh, that as we study theology and as we are conformed ever more to the image of the Son by the renewing of our minds, we can look forward to the moment when God will unveil his perfect future and he will dwell with us and the knowledge of God will fill the whole earth like the waters uh, cover the sea. And what does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 4 after referring to the uh, return of Jesus? He says, so therefore encourage one another with these things. Uh, Because brothers and sisters, whatever else we know and as perplexing as this life can be, And as difficult as life can be in this veil of tears and as we deal with sorrow and sin and brokenness and decay, brothers and sisters, you and I, we know how the story ends. So let me leave you with that. Uh, Peace be with you and many blessings and thanks for your time.